We're going to be in Psalm 145 today. We're going to spend the summer in the Psalms, but I'm not going to go from 1 to 150. We don't have that much time. So what I've done is I've asked some of the people on staff and some friends, what's your favorite psalm? And then I got looking at them, so okay, how do I want to order these? And today's Psalm 145 is Frank Sushan's favorite psalm. And those of you who come to our church, um, you know that Frank has been recovering for six months from a lot of health issues. He's watching right now. And I called him yesterday and said, Frank, we're doing your psalm. So, and this is a perfect psalm to introduce the psalms because it's a psalm of praise. So let's go ahead and ask God to, um, and by the way, if you know Frank, go visit him. He'd love to have visitors. He would love to have a visitor. So call Wendy first. Father, thank you for your word. And thank you for the book of Psalms. And just give us great insight into who you are and who we are and what you've done for us through your son. And we love you in Christ's name. Amen. So the book of Psalms, I mentioned there's 150 of them. The Psalms was Israel's worship hymnal. This is what they used to worship. And the Psalms are, cover a breadth of human experience and emotion. It's really incredible. When you look through them, you realize that joy is all through the Psalms. Rejoice in the Lord. Paul says that a lot. comes from the book of Psalms. There's a lot of sadness, even despair in the Psalms. Those are called Psalms of Lament. We'll do a couple of those in August. Psalms of Lament are the idea of God. My life stinks. My enemies are winning and you're not doing anything. And that's just a human emotion. Have you ever been there? No, nobody has. I know that. Um, but that, that's, that's the honesty of Scripture is that we have psalms that are worship songs as you cry out to God in your sadness and despair and say, help me. There's songs of anger called the imprecatory psalms, which we're not going to do. Imprecatory psalms is, God, that's my enemy. Go kill him. I struggle with that one. <laughs> um, David does that a lot. Um, and there's a reason he does it. He's not out of line. He does it because of the Abrahamic covenant, which we can talk about some other time. There's psalms of confusion. There's psalms of repentance, which we're going to do one of those, where David repents from his affair with Bathsheba. And it's a beautiful song of repentance and calling out to God for cleansing and restoring. So we're going to look at a lot of psalms this summer, and I'm very excited about it. But the main theme of the psalms is praise and worship. In the end, all those human circumstances and emotions are all under the banner of the Psalms are about praising and worshiping our great God. And so I wanted to start with one of those. And when Frank said 145, I said, that's it. Let's do that. First, I want to give you some of the features of Hebrew poetry. This is kind of academic now, so please don't, um, don't check out on me. It's very important. As we interpret the Psalms, you've got to understand these principles. The book of Psalms is written in poetry. Hebrew poetry is a specific form of poetry, very different than English. English poetry tends to rhyme. Um, it has meter. So, so does Hebrew poetry. We just don't see it in English. But one of the, also, by the way, half of the Old Testament is written in poetry. From the book of Job all the way to the last book of the Bible, Malachi, is poetry. Half of it's written in poetry. And why would God reveal his word in poetry? How many poetry lovers in the room? True poetry lovers. Keep your hands up. Raise them higher. An incredible minority. It's true. It's, it's one of those things that, you know, I, I cannot, I read a lot. 
And I can honestly say I've never sat down and read a whole book of poetry ever besides this. So you poetry lovers would call me a Philistine. But Hebrew poetry grabs me because it's the word of God. And we need to understand some principles. So here, here's, here's the one I want to talk today. It's called parallelism. Okay, I want to do this quickly. Um, parallelism is the idea you have typically two lines, a couplet. And the first line states something. The second line then either repeats it with different words, either says the opposite, or adds to it. But there's always two lines, maybe three, that you must keep together to interpret because it's the design of poetry. There's a parallelism. And so let, let me explain, give me examples from Psalm 145 of these three types of parallelism. There's synonymous parallelism. So look on the screen up here. This is verse 13 of our text today. Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. Now look at the next line. Your dominion, which is the same thing as kingdom, endures, same thing as is, throughout all generations, same thing as the everlasting kingdom. It's simply saying the same thing with different words. Does that make sense? That's called synonymous parallelism. You don't take one line out. They both must be together to interpret their meaning. The second type of parallelism is called antithetic parallelism, antithesis, the opposite. Look at Psalm 145.20. The Lord perceives all, preserves all who love him, but all the wicked he will destroy. So the first line states one truth. The second line then gives you the opposite. And usually the word yet or but is used in the translation. The Lord preserves all who love him, but all the wicked he will destroy. That comes from our text today also. Lastly, is what's called synthetic parallelism, the idea of synthesis. 145.15, the eyes of all look to you, and you give them their food in due season. The second line adds information the first line doesn't have. So synonymous parallelism, the second line says the same thing as the first line in different words. Antithetical parallelism, the second line is the opposite of the first line. Synthetic parallelism is the idea of the second line gives more information, completes the thought. This is the basic structure of all Hebrew poetry from Job all the way through the book of Malachi. And today what I want to do now is I want to, I want to read the whole of Psalm 145 to you. And I'd like you to stand up, just because you'll pay better attention. <laughs> I wasn't accusing you, I was just, it's just a fact that when I'm standing up, I tend to pay better attention. Psalm 145, a song of praise of David. By the way, David wrote half the Psalms. I extol you, my God and King, and bless your name forever and ever. Every day I will bless you and praise your name forever and ever. Great is the Lord. And by the way, capital letters L-O-R-D, what's the name there? So I'm going to use the word Yahweh. Great is Yahweh and greatly to be praised. And his greatness is unsearchable. One generation shall commend your works to another and shall declare your mighty acts. On the glorious splendor of your majesty and on your wondrous works, I will meditate. They shall speak of the might of your awesome deeds, and I will declare your greatness. They shall pour forth fame of your abundant goodness and shall sing aloud of your righteousness. 
The Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. The Lord is good to all, and his mercy is over all that he has made. All your works shall give thanks to you, O Yahweh, and all your saints shall bless you. They shall speak of the glory of your kingdom and tell of your power to make known to the children of man your mighty deeds and the glorious splendor of your kingdom. Your children is an everlasting kingdom, and your dominion endures throughout all generations. The Lord is faithful in all his words and kind in all his works. The Lord upholds all who are falling and raises up all who are bowed down. The eyes of all look to you, and you give them their food in due season. You open your hand. You satisfy the desire of every living thing. The Lord is righteous in all his ways and kind in all his works. The Lord is near to all who call upon him and to all who call upon in him in truth. Let me do that again. I messed it up. The Lord is near to all who call on him, to all who call on him in truth. He fulfills the desires of those who fear him. He also hears their cries and saves them. The Lord preserves all who love him, but the wicked he will destroy. My mouth will speak the praise of the Lord and let all flesh bless his holy name forever and ever. The last line there, verse 21, is really a repeat of the first verse, which then it's called an inclusio in poetry. The first verse and the last verse say basically the same thing, and that's the theme of the whole song, and that is the praise of our great God. So, Father, lead us in this, Lord, so that the end result is today we leave here with a greater and a fuller heart to praise you. In Jesus' amazing name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. So first, I've broken this into three things. By the way, in your bulletin is the outline for the sermon. We've gone back to that. So every week you have an outline for the sermon in there. And um, yay. So verses 1 to 3 is praise for the unfathomable, unfathomable greatness of God. So listen to 1 through 3 again. Praise the Lord. Oops, that's 146. Sorry. I will extol you, my God and King, and bless your name forever and ever. Every day I will bless you and praise your name forever and ever. Great is Yahweh and greatly to be praised, and his greatness is unsearchable. So the word unsearchable, the NIV says, and your greatness is beyond fathom. So I've used the word, the unfathomable greatness of God. And I really want us to focus in on that because these few verses tell us the theme of the verse and the theme of all the Psalms, and that is we are here to praise and worship him. And we're going to learn towards the end that that my heart has to be right with him, the idea of those who fear him, those who love him, those who obey him. That, that is what praise flows from. Genuine praise that he receives flows from a heart that is in tune with him. So what, what do you call it when someone praises God but lives the opposite life? Bit of a hypocrite. And, and everyone in this room is guilty of it at some time or another. So let's be careful of being too judgmental. But the goal here is to have that heart that is in pursuit of him. That what flows from that heart is the words here. I extol my king. I bless him forever and ever. I praise him. Those three words, extol, bless, and praise, are used combined over 200 times in the Psalms, showing you how prevalent the idea of 
extolling God, lifting him up, blessing him, which is always a weird one to me. Because if God blesses me, what's he doing? Help me out there. If, if, if I say, God bless me, what am I usually referring to? He's, I, I receive something, you know, whether it's forgiveness or I, I got a new house or something. I say, God blessed me. But then when I bless him, what does that mean? I, he doesn't need anything from me. Okay, so the, the idea of worship. So these are synonyms. Bless, extol, and praise are synonyms. So blessing from him to me is I, I, I'm the one in need, and he brings his goodness to me, and I'm blessed. So blessing from me to him is he doesn't need anything from me, but he receives my, my praise of him as a blessing. So you have the power to bless God who needs nothing from you, but yet you have the power and ability to bring something to him that blesses his heart. Isn't that, you have the power. This should, it should blow us away what he's made us to be and do. So all of that, that's the theme of this psalm, and I think the overall theme of all the psalms. But that last phrase, last verse, verse 3. Put that up again, Alex, would you, verse 3? Great is Yahweh and greatly to be praised. His greatness is unsearchable, or as the NIV says, his greatness no one can fathom. If you've been in this church a while, you've heard my analogy where my ability to understand God is like the ceiling of this building, but God is infinite. I can only understand so much of who he is. And, and th this is what this is saying. There's this capacity that we as humans have that, that I'm limited in grasping the infinite God. As a finite creature, I only have so much ability to get, understand who he is. And the only reason I can know anything about him is because he's revealed it to me. Whether in creation we can learn about who God is, or from his word. And his spirit in me can reveal things to me. But in the end, if it wasn't for that, if God had not revealed himself, I would know nothing about him. So what he has revealed, I can understand. But what he's revealed, I would suggest to you, is a pittance of the totality of who he is. Are you with me? You, whether you agree with me or not, do you understand what I'm saying? This is very important because why would you worship and praise that which is, you fully understand? Husbands and wives, do you, do you pretty much fully understand each other? Men, no joke about understanding women, okay? Oh, no one even laughed. I'm in trouble now. <laughs> um, we have, I have a pretty good knowledge of Teresa, and she has a pretty good knowledge of me, but it's not exhaustive. So if I can't exhaustively know a human being, why would I think I can exhaustively know the creator of the universe? In the early church, there was a heresy going around. It was a, call, a group of people called the Animoians. The Animoians, it's, it's a tough one. These people had lots of problems, but one of the things they believed was this. Let me read it to you. This is what they believed. God has no more knowledge of himself than we do. Or, stated differently, all that God knows about himself, we can know. This was, this is crazy. And they, they were shut down quickly as far as the other orthodox writers of the early church. Listen to Paul. Here's what Paul says. 
Romans 11.33, oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how unscrutable his ways. Finish this phrase for me. God says to, is it Jeremiah or Isaiah? Well, you finish it, you know. My ways are not, my thoughts are not. So God reveals that. See, I'm, I, I'm so beyond you. So, so when you don't grasp what I'm doing or who I am, it's not a time to try and figure it out. There's a beautiful principle that the early church fathers came up with. And um, it's called the hedge around mystery. The hedge around mystery. Uh, you know, Alex, I'm not sure they have a picture in there of the hedge. We didn't talk about that. Don't worry about it. Um, think of a hedge. Think if you're in England and there's these hedges. You can, there's like six, eight feet tall hedges, you know, and, and they create mazes with them. You ever seen that? I want you to think of a hedge in a circle. Okay? So where there's no entrance into this, inside that circle. And they refer to that as the hedge around mystery. The mystery inside is that which God has not revealed to us about who he is. So that hedge keeps us out. Now, in England, in those hedges, you could really push yourself through a hedge, probably. You get all scratched up and everything. But when you try to understand God, you come to the edge of the hedge and you stop. And you say, I've come to the limit of what he has revealed about himself. I don't get to know what's inside of there. But when you push yourself through, you've entered the realm of heresy. Almost all, if not every heresy of the early church, even today, is because they took a mysterious thing about God and figured it out. We really value, because of the enlightenment in, in the 1600s, we really value reason and logic. We can reason and, and logic our way through anything that's difficult. And, and that, that belief has created a, a world of, of science, a world that, that is a good place to be in. But when it comes to God, when you push yourself through that hedge to figure out the mysteries he has not revealed about himself, you are now in the realm of the unknown. And your logic will create a God just like you. That's all your logic can do, is be like you. And when you've done that, you've entered the realm of heresy. The more you bring God down to your level of understanding, the more you make him like you. The more you make him like you, the less you will worship him. So we have this God that we say, I don't understand God, and the Psalms are gonna deal with this. Think of the tra a tragedy in your life. Think, think right now of something that just ripped your heart out, and you called out to God, and you didn't get a satisfying answer from him. What could be a result in your faith? Say again. Doubt. Doubt. Despair. Even so far to unbelief. If that God really loved me, why did he let this happen to me? And this is where we have to fully not fully, I'm not sure we'll ever fully understand the word of God, but 
have a fuller understanding of what he's revealed about him. And then rest on that as this psalm is going to tell us God is faithful and God is good. Well, when my life says he's not faithful and he's not good, which one do I believe? My experiences that tell me he left me? Or the scriptures that tell me he is faithful and good and he has a purpose in my pain that he has not revealed to me? Do you see it? So if I push through that hedge and use my logic to define who this God is, I'm going to come up with an incompetent God or a God that doesn't care because that's where my logic is going to take me as opposed to stepping back and saying, the scripture says God is good, God is all-powerful, and he does what is right. My life doesn't feel that way now, but I'm going to trust him. That's really what got me through my divorce was how could you let this happen, God? How could you let this happen? But I trust you. I don't like it. I know you could change it. I wish you would. But I trust you. So as we, as we do the Psalms, and, and I, you guys know me. If you come to this church, you know me. You know my story. And God blessed me mightily with Teresa. So I always want to follow up on that when I talk about my divorce. Um, when we do this psalm and every psalm, and we see the emotions of the writer, what we always have to come back to, and the psalmist usually does come back to it, but God, you are great. You are amazing. You are righteous. You are wonderful. And you deserve praise. That's what we're going to do this summer. You ready for the ride? Let's go to the next section then. Proclaiming God's unfathomable greatness to others. So this next section is verses 3 through verses, um, verse 4 to 13. So let's look at that. 4 to 13. I'm going to read from my notes because I highlighted some stuff. One generation shall commend your works to another and shall declare your mighty acts. So one generation meaning the older one. Primarily, generations can go, it can be a two-way street. But as general rule, the older generation who's experienced the mighty acts of God need to tell their children and grandchildren about this. So now look what it says, though. It goes back and forth between the plural and the singular. One generation shall commend your works to another and shall declare your mighty acts. On the glorious splendor of your majesty and on your wondrous works, I will meditate. So, so David goes back from the multitude should do this, and I will do this. So verse 5, on the glorious splendor of your majesty and on your wondrous works, I will meditate. So where do we see the glorious splendor of God's majesty? Yeah, where do you live? I mean, think about it. You don't got to go far to see majesty. And if this creation, which is imperfect, communicates a majesty of the perfect majestic being, how much more can we extrapolate and not even get close to it, how amazing he is? And David says, on this, I will meditate, on your wondrous works. What are some of the wondrous works, biblically speaking, that God has done? This isn't trick question. This, is, this should be really obvious. Yeah, yeah. So, so the cross and the resurrection. The incarnation, 
These are the wondrous works of God that he's revealed. But every one of you has a story of the wondrous works he's done in your life. And to stop and to maybe go down to the lake, go to a rock that no one's at and sit there, look across to Mount Talak. As the snow this time of year, you can see the cross in Mount Talak. If you've never done that, look down south and, um, and meditate on what he's done for you in Christ and what he's done in your life specifically. Just, just slow down. Aren't we too busy? I know I am. Every week just flies by. Before you know it, it's Sunday morning again. And then I got to wake up and think, what am I going to preach today? <laughs> Verse 6, and they shall speak of the might of your awesome deeds, and I will declare your greatness. So they shall speak, I will declare. They shall pour forth the fame of your abundant goodness and shall sing along of your righteousness. Now, verse 8 is they, that is the congregation, the people of God, are going to do verse, verse 7. They shall pour forth the fame of your abundant goodness. So, so we, the congregation, should be, should be talking about the abundant goodness of our God to each other and to people in our neighborhood. We, don't, don't be obnoxious. But we need to be verbal people of praise about our great God. Because if we don't do it, they're not going to hear it. There's plenty of people out there talking false things about our great God, are there not? So we need to come with the right heart attitude to, to bring the true things. So let me do it again. They shall pour forth fame of your abundant goodness and shall sing aloud of your righteousness. Now verse 8 now changes from what your congregation and I will do, David, to a de declaration of what should be proclaimed. This is what the people are proclaiming. Verse 8 and 9. Do me a favor, read this with me. Read, the, read verse 8. Okay, let's read it together. The Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Let's go to the next verse. Good to all, and his mercy is over all that he has made. So go back to verse 8, Alex, if you would. The Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. This occurs almost as exact words no less than five times in the Old Testament. It occurs Moses, God says this to Moses about himself in Exodus chapter 34. Joel says this in Joel chapter 2. In the midst of God bringing the wrath of the day of the Lord, Joel says, but yet he's gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness. So um, David mentions that once again in the psalm, Jonah, though, is my favorite. Jonah says these words. And I want to take a little excursion. Not, we won't turn to Jonah, but just tell you that story. If you remember when God called Jonah to go preach in Nineveh, what did Jonah do? Go east, Jonah, and proclaim to Nineveh against their wickedness. What does Jonah do? Gets up and goes west as far as he could was his goal. To Tarshish, which we don't know where that's at, but some people believe it's Spain, which at that time, Spain was the end of the world, the known world. Jonah says, I'm not going there. Tar um, Nineveh was the, one of the leading cities of the, um, um, the Assyrians. Thank you very much. So um, and they, were, they were not a good people. They were cruel. And Jonah hated them. All the Israelites hated them. So Jonah says, I'm not going there. Some would say Jonah ran because he was afraid. He wasn't afraid. That's just creepy. 
I'm not a conspiracy theorist, but Siri is listening. <laughs> um, <laughs> just threw me off. Okay, so, so let, me, let me not take too long on Jonah. Jonah flees. God brings him back through the whale, spits him out on land. Jonah reluctantly walks to Nineveh, which is 700 miles. Eventually gets there after months and months. Proclaims one time, goes in the city one time, proclaims, yet 40 days and Nineveh will be destroyed. That's all he says, and he goes outside, sits on a hill. What does Nineveh do? Repents. All of them repent. And God forgives them. And, no, and Jonah was full of joy. <laughs> Jonah was ticked off. Because Jonah wanted God to kill them all. And that's what Jonah said with gritted teeth. That's what I said when I was in my own country. That's why I ran, God, because I knew you would forgive them because you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and one who relents concerning calamity. Regularly, when you say you're going to do something and people repent, you forgive them. <laughs> and I, I, I'm one of those people. I'm a typical human. God, forgive me, but get punishment on him. So, so that, that's what Jonah was. So here's what I believe. This psalm, Jonah is a good testimony of this. The core heart of the being of God is he is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness. It's not that he won't bring judgment, he will. But when he says, I'm going to bring it and you turn from your wickedness, he forgives. He loves to forgive and restore. That's the heart of our God. That's the heart of this psalm. And should be the heart of our faith. In fact, we were in men's Bible study. I forget where it was. So if someone in men's Bible study can remind me. There's a passage in one of the prophets that says that judgment is God's strange work. It's not what he normally wants to do. He does bring judgment over time. And he gives people lots of time. And there's a judgment coming to those who don't turn from their wickedness and turn to Jesus. But God is patient, not wanting any to perish, according to 2 Peter. That's our God. That's the one we are worshiping. Let's keep reading. Verse 10. All your works shall give thanks to you, O Lord, and all your saints shall bless you. They shall speak of the glory of your kingdom and tell of your power to make known to the children of man your mighty deeds and the glorious splendor of your kingdom. Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and your dominion endures throughout all generations. What's up there? So I just want to reiterate this section is about proclaiming God's unfathomable greatness to others starting in our families that do you remember when I did the sermon on child raising we had the three chairs up here do you remember that that the first chair was David and his strong faith the second chair was his son Solomon who went lukewarm and the third chair was Rehoboam David's grandson who was an apostate something happened in the transmission from the faith of David to pass that on to Solomon to pass it on to Rehoboam to where Within two generations, from David to Solomon to, to that three generations to Rehoboam, the faith is lost. It's our job, parents, to pass on our faith to our kids. Grandparents in the room, if your children, our children aren't doing as good a job as we think they should, then we need to engage our grandchildren. This has been on my heart and mind a lot lately. I, I get, get so busy in life some of it important, some of it not important. 
that I fail to um, engage my grandchildren as I should to remind them of who they are, who God is, and who they are in Christ. Um, and and I, I know I, 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 pr- I pick on Teresa a lot, and I praise Teresa a lot. She's very good w- with, with some of the grandchildren. We see a lot. Very good at doing this. And, and some of the children we don't see a lot, I'm going, okay, God, what's my responsibility here? What's my opportunity? Not just responsibility. But I encourage the parents here and the grandparents, our children and grandchildren will not know about the mighty deeds of God if we don't share them. And the most mightiest deed of God is the incarnation, the righteous life, the death, burial, and resurrection of our Lord Jesus, and his ascension to the right hand of God where he intercedes for us daily. That's the greatest story ever told, to borrow a line from a movie. Let's go on to the next section there. We'll finish this up. Praise for God's unfathomable attributes. This last section, starting in the middle of 13 to the 21, I'm just going to read it. You guys, you guys have your Bibles. I, I'm not going to, I'll try not to talk too much. But I'll read slow to, to look at some of the attributes of God, both when it specifically says God's faithful or it mentions something he's done, we have to extrapolate what attribute that might be. And, and this is the things God has revealed to us about who he is. These are the things we grab a hold of as David grabbed a hold of and said, I'm basing my life on the fact that my God is this person. I, I will stand on the truths of who he is so when my world falls apart or my world's full of great blessings, I know who to run to. So verse 13 in the middle of it, the Lord is faithful in all his words and kind in all his works. Yahweh upholds all who are falling and raises up all who are bowed down. You may not feel like he's holding you, but he is. The eyes of all look to you and you give them their food in due season. You open your hand, you satisfy the desire of every living thing. Yahweh is righteous in all his ways and kind in all his works. Yahweh is near to all who call upon him, to all who call upon him in truth. So there's a qualifier now. Some people call upon God in lies and falsehood, not calling upon the wrong God. This, is, this, this really speaks against all, all that really matters is you have faith. It doesn't matter what your faith is in, as long as you have faith. That's not biblical. Your faith is only as valid as what you put your faith in. So we must know who our God is and in truth call upon him. He feels, fills, he fulfills the desire of those who fear him. He also hears their cry and saves them. Yahweh preserves all who love him, but all the wicked he will destroy. The last verse, which summarizes the first verse. My mouth will speak the praise of Yahweh and let all flesh bless his holy name forever and ever. So for today, I'm going to invite the worship team back up. My mouth will speak the praise of Yahweh and let everyone in this room stand up and bless his holy name for the next 30 minutes. That's a, come on, stand up.
God, we thank you for your word today in Psalm 145. Thank you for David and his heart of, of, of being a musician, a poet, writing these psalms for us to worship you. So, Lord, as we now re-engage song, that we hope and trust that um, we will grasp and humble before your, your unfathomable greatness. That, Lord, we recommit ourselves to passing on how great you are and what you've done for us to our children and grandchildren. And, Lord, help us to always meditate on Scripture that talks about how faithful, great, patient, kind, beautiful, all these things that describes you, all these attributes that we can know you, to uh, meditate on those, Lord, so we can draw closer. Thank you. We adore you. In Christ's mighty name we pray.